Bienvenidos a Full Disclosure. Yo soy Robin Farzad. Dr. B. Agent B. The fixer. The broker. The peacemaker. The, quote, Colombian Traffickers Rehabilitation Program. Close quote. In his 45-year career as an asset for the CIA, DEA, and various other arms of law enforcement, Colombian-born fashion photographer Baruch Vega has earned all manner of nicknames. He's been a rare bright spot in America's largely frustrated, multi-billion dollar war on drugs, convincing numerous targets to surrender to authorities. And you won't believe his story. I call it the Kingpin Whisperer. Doctor, gracias por unirse a nosotros. I won't disclose your location. Let's say you're joining us via um, encrypted line uh, in the basement of a safe house in northern Rhodesia. Is that okay? That's closer. <laughs> How are you today? Fine. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me in your program. Baruch, what is your favorite nickname of all the dozens of nicknames that you've had in the United States and in Latin America? Uh, well, I, I don't remember that many, but uh, all I remember many, it's difficult to choose one because sometimes I was one thing and another thing I was a different name. And depending on what was the operation that we were doing, I had different names. If I go obvious, if I go into Medellin, like into one of the slums, Comuna Norte, what what is on average what are you known as over there? El doctor. The doctor. El doctor. Yeah, the doctor. And this emanates from your dealings with is it Pablo Escobar was the most high profile person you've negotiated with? Well, I negotiated with his boss, which is Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha. The Mexican uh, Gacha. The Mexican, correct. You know, as, as, as you know, the most well-known trafficker was Pablo Escobar, but the biggest and most powerful man ever in the history of drug trafficking at the time was Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, the Mexican. And so I'm curious, you know, I uh, for, for listeners out there, you know, I'm working on this book on a history of a famous hotel in Miami uh, whose heyday was in the late 70s and early 80s. It was, it was called the Mutiny Hotel and the Mutiny Club. And uh, that that era, um, that cohort largely remembers you as the fashion photographer, as the bon vivant, as the playboy filling up bathtubs for Arab sheikhs and drug kingpins and beautiful women, filling them up with, with Dom Perignon. But you led a, a parallel life, which a lot of people don't realize, is at the same time that all these drug kingpins were coming into this hotel and club in Miami— in the late 70s and early 80s, you were helping the DEA. Correct. I was helping the, both the DEA and the CIA. And so how did this come about? I, I remember a story, you know, the, the, the dissonance, the, the, you know, you being a playboy, you being on, on sailboats, partying with all these gorgeous supermodels that you were photographing here uh, and the beaches of South America, in Panama, in Miami. Uh, but then you were also beaten to within an inch of your life just 10 years before that. I, I remember you telling me leaving Colombia. Can you take us to that moment and the, the incident surrounding it? Absolutely, yes. Um, I was a member of, or I was the head of the student council at the university in uh, Colombia, at the uh, Bucaramanga University. When was this? Uh, that was in the uh, late uh, 60s. And while attending to the university, I was one of the student leaders. I've been a student leader, of course, immediately you become like the target uh of revolutionary groups, one from the police and the other one from the revolutionary groups it, uh, themselves. 
then I was a revolutionary, like every other student in, in the country uh, didn't like the system, were protesting against everything, but we were, or we have an extremely well-defined uh, path. We were extremely nationalistic, and we only want to go that route. We didn't want to import uh, foreign ideologies or foreign philosophies. We were extremely nationalistic. And so this was in the heart of the Cold War, right? I mean, yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything that else was that was going the, on. Ex exactly. That was when the international politics were all around communists. Uh, communism at that time was the worst uh, thing that uh, anyone could ever be part of it or 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 be uh, or being one of those. So how you did know, you, Baruch, was... How did you get beaten up? I mean, you are a student. You, your parents uh, uh, sent you. You're an upstanding student. You were uh, on track to become an engineer. You picked up photography as a as a habit. Why, you know, your political proclivities aside, why would anybody just beat you up and want to kill you? Well, initially, I was starting to shoot pictures of all the beautiful women of Bucaramanga. Unfortunately, I was very young. And then I started to get involved with most of them. Then I created a lot of jealousy among many people. But also I became the target of both the revolutionary groups and the police. And one day I was kidnapped. Uh, and what I thought that was the police that kidnapped me, they took me instead of uh, when they arrest me, when the police arrested me, they took me to a farm instead of taking me to their police prison. In the farm, they start to beat me up, torture me, and ask me all kind of questions about revolution, uh, trying to identify pictures, trying to identify individuals, trying to uh, tell them about uh, locations and plans. But I didn't know any of those questions that these individuals were doing. After that, or during that process, uh, is that I discovered that these policemen were real policemen, but those were people helping the guerrilla organizations. And they thought that I was providing information to the government because I was very close to the chief of police of uh, that city of Bucaramanga, where I was going to college. Uh, um, and because of that, they thought that I was providing information, but I was never providing information. So in this farm, they beat you up, you, you told me, to within an inch of your life. What what do you recall when you came to, when well, you woke up? Uh, well, I, I remember the first uh, time I lost conscious uh, because of the, the punches that they were giving me. And when I woke up, I remember I have urinated and defecated in, in, my, in my clothes. And, and I was bleeding all over. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they woke me up or make me bring conscious again. And at that time, they continued the interrogations and, con and the beating continued and the torture continued. And I went on like that for many, many, many days. Uh, fast forward, you were then intercepted somehow by the CIA. Um, well, what happened? The, well, at that point... Uh, after I was, by pure luck, liberated or, or ran out of the place where I was kidnapped, <clears throat> I called my roommate at the time. My roommate was an American professor who asked me, who told me that if one day I wanted to come to the United States, he would help me. But unfortunately, my American professor was the 
classic prototype of a true communist. And I was, I used to argue with him all the time. We never agreed to anything related to politics or international uh, beliefs in, uh, and philosophies. And we argue. He was the classic communist, and I was the opposite. But the guy has some, he was always trying to, to, to flip me and trying to be part of them. Finally, one day, uh, when I called him, when I was released or liberated from, or I escaped from this uh, torture, capsules, uh, is when I called him, uh, but more to report that I was alive after disappearing for so many days. And then he, he told me, well, do you remember I told you if you wanted to come to the United States, I could help you get a job over there. He gave me a number to call, and I called the Caracas Embassy. And the, Car the people from Caracas, they were expecting for my, my call uh, because Alan had already provided all the information. And at, and at that point is when I realized uh, that my roommate was nothing else than the sputter for the CIA. Oh. And that's the reason why we were arguing all the time. He wanted to know exactly how good or how bad I was with, uh, with the, my beliefs in uh, 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 political beliefs. So the fascinating thing is, as I understand, and you know, reading your book, which was published in Spanish, and uh, you could see various YouTube videos about you and various articles. You were on the front of the Wall Street Journal, I believe, in 2000. Uh, there were various uh, pieces done in the Miami Herald and the St. Pete Times. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, we, let's fast forward this a bit. You end up in the United States in 1976, was it? Uh, very happy working as a fashion photographer in New York City, and a neighbor of yours kind of uh, contacts you to help her get her husband out of a pickle? Well, at that time, um, I was working as an engineer first. Uh, uh, my, my, I graduated in structural engineering, and I was working as an engineer, and also the company was paying me to do my Ph.D., and while I was attending to do my PhD, also I was attending to law school. And in law school, I met this guy who was uh, who participated with me in the overthrow of uh, of the Chilean president of them, uh, President Salvador Allende. He was member. Of, he was an ex member of CIA, and at that moment, he was working for the FBI. After the guy, I met my friend again. Uh, he gave me his car, anything I need, uh, he will help me. Then uh, one of those days I was in my place and a friend of mine, one of our uh, uh, models and, and uh, neighbors came crying because her husband had been arrested and she knew that I was going to law school or I, or I knew many attorneys. He came looking for an attorney. Uh, immediately I called my friend at the FBI to check to see if uh, they could help us with this friend of mine that had been arrested. He checked on the case and he realized that the guy was arrested on, for drug trafficking. But also while he continued interrogating or, or finding out the details, he found out that the guy was going to be released because basically they didn't have anything against him and he was to be released, uh, which gave me great news uh, to provide to his uh, wife. 
<laughs> so uh, maybe it was a misunderstanding that they thought maybe because of a formality that suddenly you had some sort of magic or clout with the authorities. Well, uh, at that point, uh, she simply thought that uh, because I was going to law school, I knew attorneys because well, I did, in in fact, uh, many attorneys that were there uh, taking the various courses. Uh, and I have uh, uh, some business cards from various attorneys. But the important part is that after the, uh, this uh, gentleman was released, uh, my friend uh, from the FBI uh, asked me to go and pick him up. And when I picked him up, immediately the guy thanked me and left to Colombia. We thought the guy was not a drug trafficker, but later on we realized he was a major drug trafficker and belonged to one of the big families in Colombia. But good for you in that the reputation kind of preceded itself, even though maybe you're being self-effacing about what you did. You were just a law school student, but uh, you had friends in law school, friends who knew legal procedure. Uh, but this reputation is then something that you you uh, capitalized on over the following decade. That was the beginning of something that became a huge thing in my future. And I was basically the first case, obviously, they flew me to Colombia, they compensate me very well. They always thought that I, because of me and my uh, my friends help, uh, this kid was released. And, uh, and uh, Who is they? Who is they? These are the drug lords in the mid-70s? Well, the, yes, they, this, this was extremely sophisticated family in Colombia whose uh, the father was uh, one of the key players uh, in the drug trafficking at the time from the Bogota cartels, and who were first being extremely sophisticated family, uh, secondly, uh, socially and politically were at the highest of the Colombian uh, society and Colombian government. And like always, uh, drug trafficking has infiltrated or has extend to the highest of the highest level of everything in Latin America. Baruch, for our listeners, uh, please explain what, what cocaine meant to Colombia in the early 70s, in the mid-70s. Because you talk to people, uh, certainly a lot of the other people that you'd encounter in Miami later in the 1980s, it was much more of a curiosity. People uh, people were moving lots of marijuana. Marijuana was the drug of choice of the decade. Cocaine was still a curiosity. And uh, I'm told by Colombians that this was, a, this was a crop that really filled the vacuum when uh, a lot of textile jobs were lost or in the clothing industry when it went downhill in Medellin and in Bogota, that uh, people turned their, their capital and their skills to, to moving cocaine? Well, more than that was, uh, or the main reason of this was the following. Many of the uh, children of the rich families were studying overseas or were they sent to, to, to school, especially in the United States. When they started to attend in a school or college in the United States, and they started to participate in various social events, they realized that it, there, there were many drugs that were highly appealing to the society people, but most of the, one of those drugs especially was cocaine. Cocaine was the drug of the king of the society of everybody. And in Colombia, cocaine was only used by the lowest of the lowest at the time. Only the farmers, only the poor people 
that cannot afford to buy a drink, they used to use cocaine. Then it was surprising for all these society kids in Latin America or in Colombia especially, seeing that what we had in Colombia as a secondary thing or a very low class thing, it was the, the most powerful thing in the United States. And then at the time, in the late, uh, uh, at the time that Woodstock in New York happened, also was the time that a major fight in the Edmonds mines started to the point that the Colombian government have to close all the Edmiral explo exploitation. Emerald mines, emerald mines. Emerald mines, right. exactly. At the time of the closing of these Edmiral mines, the surplus of cash by all these Esmeralderos or uh, Esmeral merchants in Colombia was so astronomical, they need to invest their money into something. Is after Woodstock when the drug proliferation started and is when they decided to get involved in cocaine and finance all the operations. Uh, well, they have in place armaments, they have in, in place all kind of workers, but more than anything, they have a network of uh, a worldwide of the biggest people uh, um, uh, that distributors of admirals, of admirals that came in place and took over for the cocaine distribution. So, illustri how, well, illustrate it for me. You remember kind of back in the envelope, what were the economics of cocaine from the crop, from, you know, cocoa leaf to uh, final distribution, say, in the streets of New York City? Because you were on both ends. You you know it uh, in, in agricultural Colombia all the way to, say, 1976 New York City. How did it work? At the, at the time, you will buy the, the coca leaves, uh, the enough coca, uh, uh, coca leaves to prepare a kilogram of cocaine. You will buy that in the mountains of Peru and Bolivia. And the maximum that you will pay was uh, $1,500 to $2,000, the most expensive. From those $2,000, you invest $3,000 between transportation and preparation of the, uh, of the alkaloid and... From there, from your $5,000 investment, you will send that to New York. And in New York, wholesale was $60,000 per kilogram. It was $55,000 profit per kilogram. Obviously, anyone wanted to be part of that incredible business. All the society, the Colombian society, jump into this. All the businessmen, everybody wants to be part of this. And the worst is politically, everybody was very happy. The authorities did not want to look this as a bad part, but more like a, a, a entrepreneurial uh, event. Entrepreneurial. So let's take this again. Let's say you buy however however much of however many bales of cocoa leaf uh, from Peru, from Bolivia in the early. Uh, you know, 1970s, there's a whole part of the Colombian frontier that's not monitored, that's not watched. You can very easily smuggle across the border. You're saying that, say, let's say for a thousand, two thousand dollar commitment, after all the processing and value add, uh, the wholesale value of that in the United States was $50,000 a kilo? $60,000. And $60,000 a kilo, a typical drug dealer, I understand, would cut it with. Uh, with a baby laxative or something else to kind of dilute it and then give himself essentially two for the price of one. Yeah, basically, exactly. That, and that was the first cut. With the first cut, you could double your money. 
then you could produce it uh, $100,000 $120,000. And then it, it will go on and on and on. And people, I mean, people make uh, tons of money. Then basically, you bring 10 kilograms into to the United States and you were making a huge fortune just with 10 kilograms that you could pack in a suitcase and send pretty women or older people that will go easily through customs and immigration and nobody will care to, to, to check their bags. Wow. We're talking with Baruch Vega, whose story I think is more than surreal. Let's call him an alternative asset for the DEA, CIA, FBI, Miami police. In your 45-year career, after you were beaten to within an inch of your life um, in Colombia and smuggled into Venezuela and then became an operative for the CIA. And uh, to this day, I think if people look you up, they just see on the surface you're a fashion photographer and you surround yourself with beautiful women. You've been married to beautiful women. Your children are movie stars and, and very well known. But there's a there's very much a shadow and a persona. People don't realize that uh, unless they really research that you led this whole double life. Well, yes. Uh, today, I am glad I could tell the story. I went through a lot of things, a lot of difficulties, and a lot of, uh, well, when you work undercover, uh, uh, trying to fight possibly one of the biggest financial powers in the world is very difficult because uh, somebody was saying, you could fight anything, but the only thing that you could, that is very difficult to fight is money. And, and we all know that the uh, drug revenues at the time were between 100 to 120 billion dollars a year uh, business then that will expand or will reach every social political and, and economical level uh, uh, not only in, did it in Colombia, but also in the United States. Yeah, take me there. Take me to Miami in your travels in the late 70s. Here you're known as a, a fun-loving, handsome, uh, very tan, uh, uh, you know, debonair fashion photographer who's bringing some of the most beautiful women uh, into Miami to shoot on the beach, into Fort Lauderdale. And this is when you encountered in a photo shoot uh, the Mutiny Hotel, uh, let's say 1978. Tell me about that. Well, um, with, a, with a French group that I had met at the Studio 54, uh, we went to shoot in St. Bart's. After our in St. Bart's. In, in St. Bart's, correct, in Caribbean. After the St. Bart's, we came to Miami and we went to the Mutiny Hotel. And at the Mutiny Hotel was one of the most important centers to bring or, 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 or for attendance of the celebrities and society of the time. The obligatory or, or the route always was St. Bart's, Miami, New York Studio 54, or, or vice versa. Or you will spend the evening at Studio 54 and the next day you were at the mutiny hotel in coconut grove right as you explained to me the venezuelans who would come out of the oil crisis the oil shock in the early 70s they called them the dame dos give me two uh, they'd fly into miami international airport their wives and daughters would go uh, what is it to the Dadeland mall on huge shopping sprees with their with their currencies their abundant currencies while the united states economy was wrecked and then they'd go spend lunch or dinner at the mutiny and sometimes fly back late that night well it was incredible one day uh, <clears throat> we realized that there were more than 40 private airplanes at uh, Miami with people that came 
in their private planes to have lunch at the mutiny, do their shopping, and go back in the afternoon in their private planes. All the billionaires and important people from Venezuela were coming to Miami. But of course, they were not just the Venezuelans then, were the people from Aruba, the people from Colombia, the people from the Central America, and all the high society people started to come. So you took these beautiful models, you took these beautiful models to the Hotel Mutiny um, uh, on Sailboat Bay. That's in Coconut Grove, Florida. It's like the West Village of of Miami. Uh, This was before South Beach had any sort of club scene. This is when Miami had very few high rises, late 70s Miami. Uh, You were impressed. I mean, what what was the scene like in there? Is it, I I, I read that, you know, there was a, a grotto. It was almost like the Playboy Mansion. There were uh, flora and fauna and beautiful scenes to photograph your models. Um, walk me through that. Well, um, the hotel itself was a uh, uh, all individually decorated suites, and the club were a uh, two uh, two floors uh, that they were the second and the third floor that were the real club, and uh, it became basically the most successful operation in South Florida. I mean, all the royalty, all the celebrities, and of course, later on, everyone who has major amounts of cash, you will want it to go to the mutiny. And is when uh, that's the time when most of the Colombian started to become powerful with the, with the cocaine business. They started to attend to the mutiny. At the beginning, you only see, we used to see only the big bosses coming into the mutiny. But the big bosses will come and spend any amount of money trying to compete with the Venezuelans and competing with the Venezuelans and competing with all these uh, uh, people. Then they started to bring their workers and little by little, the quality of the people attending the mutiny it start to drop a little bit. But in its heyday, in its heyday for you, you you know you regale me with stories, and I saw them in in your book when translated into English. People would come in. You're you're telling Arab sheikhs, kingpins, anyone from big big money from Venezuela, from uh, Colombia, from Argentina, and they'd commission a, a, a Roman tub full of Dom Perignon. Well, uh, at that time, it was. Uh, what, what does that accomplish? I mean, it just shows the world that you have money to, to, to blow into a bathtub. Yes, uh, they wanted to show up and they wanted to say, well, we have teas. Somebody asked me one day, what can we do? Let's create something really extravagant. And I say, by any chance, have you ever taken a bath in champagne? I didn't know what was that. I, I just came up. And the guy says, no, but that sounds very good. And I said, well, you give it a try. I remember they started to bring bottles and bottles and bottles of champagne. And finally, one of the uh, uh, guys, they say, well, we ran out of champagne. We, and the bathtub was only like a, a quarter of uh, fill, uh, 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 I, and I, a quarter uh, fill. And we, we needed more. Then they went and bought cases and cases to make the whole story short. After hundreds, almost 400 bottles of champagne, the people started to jump in the, in, the, in the bathtub with champagne. And obviously, everybody was kind of drunk. Not kind of drunk, very drunk and very wasted. And that's basically what started a big thing with the champagne baths. 
And so there are just a lot of people that knowing nothing else about you remember you as the champagne bath, champagne castle guy. You would also set up uh, a, a bunch of champagne flutes on the table in the restaurant, in the club, and and make something like a cascading waterfall of champagne. Uh, just yes, just for yes. the sake of people being able to spend money. Again, this is amid a very weak national economy. This is the late Carter years and the stagflation of the 70s. But uh, the kingpins coming into Miami, the wealthy South American uh, uh, you know, uh, industrialists, agriculturalists, drug lords, uh, people related to them, Arab sheikhs, were, were just raking in the dough. Well, everyone who has major amount of money have to go to the mutiny regardless of the social level. Well, one of the things that we saw at the mutiny is that the highest political, the highest social, the highest of anything, including criminal groups, they will all meet at the at the top of the pyramid that was the mutiny at that time. Right. And so you are enjoying your life and it's a it's a very great life fashion photographer the money's rolling, you know, everything all, all the possible food and 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 luxurious uh, people and celebrities and the recording studio next door uh Ted Kennedy coming in, uh, you know, the Eagles, various characters. This is like the Studio 54 of Miami, but then you were accosted by someone who you remembered at the CIA. Uh, which then brought you back to the profession, as it were. Well, one day having lunch, I saw this individual. He came with two other gentlemen, say hello to me uh, when I was leaving the mutiny. And then uh, I recognized he was one of my uh, partners at the in the failed attempt to overthrow Salvador Allende in Chile. He has the leftist, some- the leftist ruler of Chile. Yeah, the, elected, right. the only elected ruler of Chile, uh, or communist uh, ruler of Chile. And then um, uh, he has put on some 30 pounds that, and has a beard. That's why I didn't recognize him at the beginning. And he's the one that introduced me with the CIA people, uh, I mean with DEA people, and uh, they explained to me that they've been following me or in, in or doing all kind of interrogations about me. But uh, to that point, they believe uh, I was still clean and that they want me, if I could help them uh, uh, work with, uh, with them uh, to penetrate drug trafficking organizations, which at the time, the top of all these drug trafficking organizations uh, from Colombia and Cuba and Central America, Venezuela, and also, they were all coming into the mutiny and I was meeting them all. So why would you why would you agree to do this? It was life was great as it was. You're there, you know, jumping into champagne baths, being surrounded by beautiful women, meeting celebrities. Why did you feel like was there a patriotic reason that you said, okay, sure, I'll sign up with Washington again? Well, in the same way that I have participated initially against to 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 work against communism, uh, uh, drug trafficking. I was not involved in drug trafficking. I. I knew many drug traffickers, but I have not sympathy for them. I have no sympathy for the crimes that they were committing. At the time, they were killing people left and right, and they were uh, becoming an untouchable people in Colombia. They were dictating the rules, the politics, and everything in society. Then I didn't like, I never used drugs. Then uh, uh, that was a, 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 a big reason for me to 
to basically, as a civic thing, uh, uh, help the U.S. government at the time. So tell us, you, you, um, I understand reading the book, The Cocaine Wars, there was, uh, your phone number was picked up on a drug dealer's card, a very infamous hitman and drug dealer, very openly violent guy named Amilcar, who almost uh, killed people with glee. Um, you may have known him socially in Miami in the late 70s, and then what happened? The Miami police tried to get you to play good cop at the mutiny? Well, uh, I have met Amilcar in, in New York initially, and I have... Uh, uh, he became one of the investors, Venezuelan investors, in a modeling agency that I had in Miami, in New York. So a uh, kingpin, a, a Venezuelan kingpin and hitman was investing in one of your modeling agencies. Exactly. At the time that he was brought up, he was brought up as a, a developer from Venezuela, multimillionaire who wanted to invest uh, uh, in beautiful women. And then I was looking for investors, and he invested in my company, uh, during the months after we were having some drinks, uh, drinks, and he finally says, well, listen, I cannot keep covering this anymore. I want to tell you the truth. I am a drug trafficker. I'm a hitman, and I kill people for a living. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this guy is, is civil and nice and great to get along with you, but then he admits all this to you? He admits all the things after having some drinks because he was falling in love with a girl uh, from uh, uh, from our uh, from our modeling uh, modeling agency, actually she was the one that was running the agency. Then um, then after falling in love with her, uh, then uh, then is when he confessed to me that he was uh, a drug uh, trafficker and, and a hitman. But again, at the time, this is what is really bizarre. At that time, you will walk to a bank with a suitcase full of cash, and the manager, general manager of the bank will come out and help you carry the suitcase inside the bank, and they will bring it to an office and count the money. That was the way that drug trafficking money was treated at the time. That was before it was money laundering. Sure. Then uh, this guy used to have suitcases full of, full of cash, and then after he confesses that he was a, a, a drug trafficker, I knew many bankers uh, socially because they were always chasing uh, our models at, 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 from our agency. And uh, when, when you have beautiful women, you always attract the, the wealthiest and the highest level individuals. Then I have met these bankers and then they started to provide services to, for all these drug traffickers in just converting the money into cashier checks. But at the time, that was not criminal. That was just a normal operation. You go with a suitcase full of cash into a bank, and the, everybody will help you. So again, we discussed shadow and persona, your persona being the playboy filling up bathtubs full of champagne, the, the guy who everybody could party with, was surrounded by supermodels, uh, you know, cascading champagne flutes with with everything at the mutiny. Meanwhile, something was going on behind the scenes at the mutiny, uh, which was amazing to even a lot of people in law enforcement didn't realize that you were working on this target, Amilcar, at the mutiny. How did you How did you do that? How did you provide him anonymity? What, did he come through the back door? Well, uh, Amilcar, being such a good friend, and later on when I found out that he was in the middle of a major war and the police was looking for him, then he will come to the mutiny through the back door, 
I will initially will go and uh, pick up uh, one of these suites, keys, and then I will ask him in the phone or I will send him to the, to, through the beeper, meet me at suite whatever. And then he knew already he would come through the back door and go straight to the suite. So uh, will we come under assumed name? How would it be? How would it work? No, 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 no. Nobody, nobody. Uh, I will take the room. I was uh, the 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 son-in-law of the owner. I will pick up a suite, any suite, uh, all with my own name, and the guy will come from the uh, from the back door uh, through the back door. Then nobody will ask his ask him anything. Wasn't this a very high-risk place to come in? After all, the, the feds were watching it. You had the Miami police downstairs. The Sweetwater police had a table at this club. Um, why, why, why the mutiny? Why was, it, why was it a safe place for him to meet you? Uh, the, the, it was the face safest place because the entrance from, through, from the back door, you will have no access whatsoever through the club. I mean, only you will come through the kitchen. Then uh, if you were in the hotel... Nobody will notice, uh, everybody that was at the club, nobody will notice that, that anyone was in one of the suites. Then it was a very, very easy thing to do to come through the back door and not being detected by anyone. So after you would party, you would go upstairs and meet him, and, and what would the scene be like in there? What, what would he say to you? What would you say to him? Well, we were friends. We were friends. But then one day I, uh, I noticed that he, well, he started to have a lot of problems, and he started a major war, uh, war in, uh, against many people. But and then he started to kill basically everybody that was around him. Uh, I told him uh, he killed a very close friend of mine who was a pilot at once, and who flew cocaine for him from Colombia, but he never paid him. Uh, and in order to avoid the payment, he killed him. I asked him, uh, I was very disappointed, and, uh, but he asked me to help him because he was in a major, major war. He had run out of money. Uh, also, he had become extremely addicted to crack cocaine, and every time he was uh, using crack, he was basically killing everybody. Uh, I thought that I could be one of the next uh, targets on him, I tried to ask him, and that was one of the first individuals that I was trying to flip, to surrender to the authorities, and then uh, surrendering to the authorities, he will hopefully he will serve a long-term sentence and resolve his problems. Because if you go to jail, obviously you are not going to pay any uh, anyone. I tried to convince him, uh, but he wanted to continue doing certain things because. He says, it sounds good. I never thought about this situation. And I, of course, I didn't know that I was working for the U.S. government. I just mentioned to him that I knew some people uh, with high contacts within the U.S. government that will help us. And of but course, what would, be, knew- what would be the upshot for him? What, he'd have to be put into witness protection or something? He's already made well, so many enemies. Well, uh, no, no, no. He w- If he will surrender, he will... He will go straight to jail. They will make it look like he's an arrest. And once you are in jail, well, you don't have any more enemies. Or, I mean, you could have still enemies, but if you own money on cocaine or those kind of things, or money laundering, they are going to come after you in jail. What could they do? So then, did, he, uh, did he seriously consider this? He was seriously considering, but he says, I am in the middle of something. 
let me think because but sounds really good i never thought about this but i think it could be very possible and at that time i was also very very involved with the head of sentac uh, 26 that was a tax force uh, in miami and very similar to haita at the present time and uh, knowing the people from sentac 26 they asked me they the they wanted to arrest it at Milker. And uh, that's when when I tried to convince him. And since he decided not to not to uh, cooperate or decided not to go at yeah, that Yeah, what happened? Point, what happened, the book says, is that Sentac 26 chased him out of the hotel and down uh, into Coral Gables. And there was a famous shootout. Uh, and then he finally surrendered a couple days later. Exactly, exactly. But uh, he did not really surrender. He was having a conversation with me. I was in a public phone, but that in that that public phone was that. Then uh, obviously, immediately it uh, it shows his location, and um, and after a conversation with me, the guy was arrested. Hmm. So Baruch Vega, how did you next? I mean, after after that era in Miami ended, how did you end up? Um you know, things got really violent in the early 80s in Miami. By 1981, it was the murder capital of the United States. The Colombians had announced their arrival, I think, in 1979 when they shot up the Dadeland Mall, the very same place you would take wealthy Venezuelans to in the early 70s. Uh, how did you feel safe kind of going into that scene, wading deeper into that and dealing with some of the most powerful and ruthless people, some of the biggest uh, drug lord families in Colombia by the early 80s? Well, um being already uh, participating with TDEA and CIA groups uh, in the mid '80s, uh, I was approached uh, by the FBI. At that time, the FBI had created the Narcotics Division in 1985, and then they introduced me with two agents. Uh, one of them, Robert Levinson, who is being kidnapped, kidnapped uh, in, in Iran, Iran right, right now. Right. Uh, then. Uh, uh, Bob Levinson uh, uh, was together with another uh, agent. Uh, they they were running the the narcotics operation, and they asked me to participate strictly in intelligence, where I will never have to testify. And since I knew so many drug traffickers, I was able to help them exactly uh, identify the structures of all the different cartels and the level of all these individuals. Again, your motivation, is it patriotism? Is it money? How are you making money this time? Well, I, I was making money various ways. Uh, I have some uh, <clears throat> investments. Uh, secondly, also, I was working as a fashion photographer. And then uh, the U.S. government uh, will allow me to retain certain amount of money from the operations that we were doing. Uh, we were doing money laundering, undercover money laundering operations with the U.S. government, and they will permit me to retain a percentage of the money mm. that was laundered. And secondly, also, at the time, um, is when the the government or the group of uh, Robert Levinson created Operation Gambit, and Operation Gambit was nothing else that an operation that will permit me to visit uh, drug traffickers in jail and help them to to release to be released 
or to lower their sentences uh, in exchange for cooperation. But, but I have I, to understand, you know, I, I would think that they're loath to deal with someone on the official level, but you would have to almost offer them something. If I'm a drug dealer, if I'm a kingpin, I would like to think that there's a there's a fixer or a person who has a corruption of patina who can rig the system for me. How did you dance on that line? And, for example, you were officially working for the DEA and for the FBI, but you also wanted to flash some cred to these guys. You you wanted to show them that, listen, I can get stuff done. I'm the doctor. Well, at that time, since everybody knew my very high international social contacts, everybody thought I have very powerful contacts in Washington. That's why for me it was very easy to show them because of my social level where that I was uh, living and I was a part, a part of it. It was very easy for me to convince them or to show them who I was. You were flying a private well, jet into Colombia? I would fly my private jet into Colombia and or, or wherever we needed to go and see the, uh, the drug traffic. And how would you pay for that? Well, uh, the government will pay part of the operations. The go At this time, we were already working with the U.S. government, with the DEA uh, and FBI, and uh, through Operation Gambit, we were convincing all these major drug traffickers to cooperate, and things started to get very well to the point that everybody thought I was a real fixer real person like in Colombia that for an, an astronomical amount of money, I will help them to reduce their sentences and I will help them to, 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 treat, to be treated in a very linear way uh, uh, in front of the uh, United States justice system. So Baruch Vega, in this in this period where you were expanding your portfolio as a fixer, as a person who the Colombian drug lords knew knew could kind of you know break in case of emergency, this could be my alternative to a full scale uh, drug war and holing up in the hillside. I could actually put down my arms and get a reduced prison sentence and see a light at the end of the tunnel. What was the scariest encounter you've ever had? Well. It, there, there were many, many of them, but the most scary one was with uh, Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, the boss of Pablo Escobar. He was an extremely violent individual, uh, but they're very bad, bad, serious killer. And, so walk me through it. Where did you fly in from? How did you get there? What were your first well, impressions? Um, he wanted to see me. He contracted me to uh, to help him with a case of one of his workers uh, uh, that have been arrested in in, uh, in Los Angeles. And after uh, uh, we, when we started to help them, I told him, listen, this is going to take us a year, uh, at least a year because of the uh, justice system, the procedures that we have to follow. But then he was becoming very impatient. And one day he asked me to go to Colombia. I went to Colombia to meet him. And when I arrived, I discovered, or prior to go to Colombia, when he started to call me uh, through Bob Levinson, he helped me with some documentations because he has lost 2,000 kilograms of cocaine he, that he thought was stolen from him, but it was a combined operation of U.S. Customs and, uh, and uh, FBI. Sure, sure. And... Uh, they asked him to send to Belize airport 3,000 kilograms of cocaine. They pick up 
only 2,000 and left 1,000 on the landing field or at the airport and then flew with 2,000 kilograms and the 2,000 kilograms disappeared. Now, the government provided with classi- what, what, what the so-called classified information saying your 2,000 kilograms were not uh, stolen. They were taken by the authorities and because of my friends who wants to help you, here is the proof that the uh, government has your cocaine. When I arrived over there, they were executing uh, an individual. They have killed already some people that were part of the 2,000 kilogram uh, deal. And, but I brought him the proof of all these uh, uh, 2,000 kilograms. And I say, you've been calling so-and-so, you did this. I give him precise details. And he look at me and he says, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm sorry we make mistakes. We all, we occasionally, we make mistakes, so-and-so that we kill and so-and-so that we kill. Um, they were uh, right. Uh, and then tur- he turned to one of the guys, says, bring the doctor the proof of what it was happening here. Then they brought a bucket with some hands that were missing some fingers, but they were, the hands were, uh, uh, they cut the hands of this individual. And he says, and the next one was going to be you. Oh, man. You saved your life with this, uh, giving us this documentation. So at the time uh, when you were there, Forbes magazine has named Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, the Mexican. Uh, they put him on their annual list of the world's billionaires. So this really heated up by the late 1980s. Uh, what's really interesting, Baruch, is if I you know, really fast forward you today, you think about the country of your birth, Colombia, that um, it, it's it, it's nothing like it, it like it was even in the early 2000s. Uh, suddenly, the some of the armed groups are putting down their arms. It's not as infamous for cocaine violence as Mexico is right now. In many respects, Caracas is more dangerous than Bogota. Uh, yeah, I want you to kind of step outside this for a minute and talk about the war on drugs and talk about Colombia and talk about all of this with your benefit of 45 years of hindsight being in the United States. Well. Um... I am one of the things that I am so glad is that finally uh, the U.S. government did something major in the fight against drugs because initially the only change that we could see in the fight against drugs was that people were becoming more millionaires, that there were more traffickers every day, and the corruption at every single level of the police and the government was the worst ever. But fortunately, after uh, year 2000, the government, uh, and after I started to publicly denounce uh, all the generals and everybody by name on a this is, this is, by the way, when you became really controversial in the United States in the early 2000s, when a person who was you know, silent and discreet for most of his you know, 30-year career suddenly starts piping up and calling out the DEA and the FBI and, and some of the inanity of the uh, big war on drugs. Well, uh, unfortunately, in March 2000, I was arrested due to a false report done by a group of corrupt agents including the heads of the DEA in Bogota, who did it together with the heads of the Colombian National Police. They wrote a false report, and due to that false report, 
I was arrested and the, my group that I was participating with uh, from DEA, they were all suspended. After severe investigation and after the debriefing of many agents, many prosecutors and, and ex-drug traffickers, finally the core rules or the opinion of the, uh, of the judge was that we were conducting the most sophisticated anti-drug operation in the history of any law enforcement in the United States. I was released of everything and I was uh, obviously uh, released of any uh, discharge of any uh, uh, possible uh, criminal uh, acts. And then at that time I went public and I started to denounce everyone. When I started to denounce everyone, the US government became into a major serious investigation and they appointed uh, um, uh, prosecutor Thomas Ken and prosecutor Thomas Ken did a fabulous uh, job and he was the head of wiretap department in Washington at the Justice Department and he was the one that I was able to pinpoint that yes the major corruption happening at the time at the American Embassy in Bogota and after he wrote the report is when the US government started to pay very serious attention and they forced the Uribe government. The president of Colombia. The ex-president of Colombia, the, or the president of Colombia at the time, they forced him to send extradited many of the top drug traffickers at, at that precise time. After releasing, after he extradited all these people, the individuals, the corrupt agents, the corrupt politicians, they have no other choice than to start cooperation with the U.S. government to avoid indictments. And we see the head of the Colombian National Police, and we saw the head of every major political organization starting cooperating with the United States to dismantle drug traffickers and to, not to dismantle drug traffickers, to, to dismantle their operations, uh, the corrupt operations and the corrupt well, the, the, net, the, net, the net result, interestingly enough, it's very hard to get a hotel room right now in Medellin. Medellin is actually much more popular with investment bankers now than it is with, uh, you know, cocaine middlemen. Uh, it's amazing the shift that has happened. You know, I've remarked on it before. Uh, when you think back to going up uh, into the hills of Medellin and meeting with people like Escobar and uh, uh, Gacha, the Mexican, uh, and, and fingers being chopped up in a bucket, it's a whole different thing right now. You could take this... Uh, this this gondola ski lift from the middle of the city up into the former slums that are being renovated. They're putting libraries up there. Um, have you been back to Colombia since? No, I have not been back to Colombia for a few years because after I denounced the chief commander of the police and other individuals that were extremely corrupt, I became obviously a target of the police. And even they have uh, finally uh, uh, replaced that chief commander of the police that uh, that um, individual still have a lot of pull with the government, and it's very dangerous for me to go over there. That's why I, I avoid not to go to Colombia anymore. And and there are two or three individuals at the highest level who still control the economy and control all the the Colombian mafias. Still, it's a major family that because they have cooperated in many occasions with the U.S. government, they become completely untouchable, both by the Colombian government and by the American government. Baruch Bega, Dr. B, the fixer, 
the Colombian Traffickers Rehabilitation Program founder and CEO. Uh, in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what were really the, the, the lessons learned when you think back to being beaten up to within an inch of your life and the bizarre journey you traveled uh, with the CIA intercepting you in the early 70s? Uh, kind of is the one thing you could share with listeners, the one thing that you wish people out there knew? Well, one of the things is that corruption, no matter what, people have to fight that corruption, no matter where the corruption is. And unfortunately, sometimes we are afraid of people, we are afraid of powers, and we are afraid of uh, retaliation because when you have money or when people have money, when your enemy, put, let's put it in that way, when your enemy has money, it's very difficult to fight that. But in the other hand, uh, it is, if your conscience tell you to do it, go ahead and do it, because it's nothing more rewarding than to have a clean, conscious mind that knowing that you cover something and that created major, major problems. Baruch Vega, thank you so much for joining us. Doctor, gracias por unirse a nosotros. Gracias, Robin. Had been a great pleasure being <laughs> with you guys in the program and the best of luck. And I will tell our listeners to look out for your book to YouTube you. You are currently negotiating uh, with various interested parties for a series or for a movie. I can't wait to see it if it's on Spanish language television, if it comes to Netflix. Uh, follow the story of Baruch Vega, V-E-G-A. Go to his website, check him out on Facebook, uh, pick up his book on Amazon. I believe you could find an English translation. And uh, follow us as well at Full D Radio on Twitter. We are on WRIR Wednesday mornings at 9. We are on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Lycos, web crawler, you name it. Full disclosure, we will be back with you next week. 